Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Our Next Guest Is. Hello and welcome to another Our Next Guest Is. This is a conversation where we meet the country's leading speakers and entertainers in the corporate and events world and we really find out what makes them tick. My name's Michael Pope and I'm here with Carson White from Leading Voice. Carson, who is our next guest? Late on the Sunday night in April 2006, our next guest received a call that would not only change his life forever, but the lives of two other men he had never even met. For five days, the Beaconsfield miners, Todd Russell and Brant Webb, had been trapped underground after a minor earthquake had triggered a mine collapse in the small town of Beaconsfield in Tasmania. How that one phone call changed his life from an ordinary family man to one of the real heroes of the Great Escape is what he will share with us today. His story is one of courage, relentless pressure, self-belief and sheer determination. After their rescue, Todd and Brad called him The Gun. To find out why, please welcome our next guest, Darren Flanagan. How are you? Good morning, Michael. I'm going well, mate. Good. Good, good, good. It's a selfish question to start with, but with your experience of getting people out of tight corners... I wonder if you can get me out of an eBay purchase I just made. Um, my 27-year-old doesn't need another inflatable pool. Is that the kind of work you do these days, helping people out of tight corners? Yeah, not really, Michael, not really. No. But in the intro, Darren, we um, we mentioned the gun. So just um, uh, tell us a, a little bit uh, why they call you the gun, but just a very short, pricey version. Basically, um, it was a pretty uh, tense and emotional uh, roller coaster ride when we started to do the blasting in the uh, in the mine in the rescue and I was blasting right in underneath them and it was something that's never been done anywhere in the world before and something I certainly hope will never have to be done again but in a nutshell uh, after we started and the blasting was working and as scary as it was we were making progress in a nutshell they uh, they called me the gun and uh, and continued that all the way through. Uh, Darren, in the intro, I mentioned also that you got that call that would change your life forever. I want you to talk just a little bit about when you got that call and, and, and what went through your mind. But why did they call you? They called me because uh, there was a new low energy explosive that had been brought from America into Australia. Uh, the company I worked for had bought the rights to it. And I was the person that had spent the most amount of time with this product, you know, doing uh, demonstrations for Sydney City Council and, you know, it was something that could be used in heritage listed foundations mm -hmm. around gas pipelines and uh, power stations, et cetera, but never, ever around human beings. Why I got the call, because I had so much experience with that product and because the mine was looking for so many different options as a rescue technique, they gave me a call. And But I, I want to just tell you that story. It was nine o'clock on a Sunday night. It was five days after the boys were trapped. I'm laying at home in my lounge room with my wife and kids. We're all watching telly. And all of a sudden, one of those little scrolls come across the TV screen to say that Todd and Brandon just just been found alive. And I was gobsmacked, absolutely gobsmacked that they were alive because there was no one in my industry that gave those boys any chance of survival, you know. They're a kilometre underground. The entire tunnel system that they're in has collapsed. So while I'm watching that, the phone rang in the kitchen and my wife Tracy raced out and grabbed it and brought it in and said, it's for you. And I'm thinking it'll just be one of my mates to say, turn the TV on, Daz, you won't believe it, but they're alive. But it was a phone call that changed my life forever. It was a big install mine and they wanted to know, well, could I, could I possibly blast a small round tunnel towards two human beings without killing them? And if I could do it, how close do you get when you do kill them? And, you know, human nature, yeah, I mean, I can't really answer that question properly for them, but human nature says you're a little bit chuffed because of all the people they could have ring, they ring you. Mm. So I started rattling on and on and on about all our new advances in technologies and how we can do things today with explosives. We couldn't even dream about 10 years ago. And the next thing he says is, I want you to stop right there, mate. And he said, we want you here with us and we want you here with us tonight. 
And I just sort of went, holy shit. You know, I said, well, hang on a minute, mate. I said, I don't think you understand. I said, I live at Nara on the south coast of New South Wales. I said, it's 10 o'clock at night on a Sunday night now. We don't have an airport. I said, if you're still this keen tomorrow, why don't you ring me and I'll see if I can get up to Sydney and find a flight down your way. And he said, listen to me carefully, mate. He said, you are going to be here tonight. He said, I need two things from you now. One, permission to ring you back later tonight. I know it's late, but he said, I need you to tell me that'll be okay. And the second thing is, he said, I need to tell me, you to tell me, that you will promise me that you'll pack a bag as soon as you put that phone down. Carson, Michael, I stood in my kitchen and I thought, Darren, you dickhead, what have you done? You know, I put that Mm -hmm. phone down and I'm, I'm just, you know, when you want to turn back time, you know, when yeah. you think, how the hell did I do this? And I uh, I remember thinking back to my school report cards, you know, because every single school report card since I was tiny he said, Darren talks too much, you know, <laughs> and nothing to change. So eventually they called me back and told me that they had uh, hired a private Learjet out of Sydney, had permission to land it at the Albatross Naval Base here in Nara. And at midnight that night, I was on a private Learjet on the ride of my life to Tasmania to see if I could if I could help. I know your presentations, you talk about emotion and the effect, the after effect of trauma and so on and so forth. And I can already hear it in your voice now about that phone call. Can you take us to that time now when you're playing with explosives that are kind of new to market and at the worst case scenario is probably the loss of three lives. Can you talk us about the emotion you were feeling at that, at that point? Yeah. The honest truth is, Michael, I was praying that I I was never going to have to be called. See, when I went into the mine at midnight that night, if you like, I got there about two o'clock in the morning by the time they took me from Launceston. I had to sit in front of a boardroom and do a presentation on what these new explosives were capable of and what I was capable of. And then after I'd finished that, um, they asked me to leave the room and a security guard took me out of the boardroom into an area that's like a quadrangle um, at school. And in that quadrangle was Todd and Brant's mums, um, their dads, their brothers and sisters and every single person that loved them was hanging on outside that door waiting for that next bit of news. You see, this was the day they were found alive. So their parents wanted to know, are you going to get our boys back? And to be pushed out into that, I tried to tell my audience that it's like being pushed into more raw human emotion than you can ever imagine seeing in one lifetime. You know, I, I remember just standing there looking at all those faces thinking, you don't belong here, Darren. Michael, when you get to this point, you get so scared that you start to doubt every single thing about yourself. When you're yeah. staring at the faces of a mum that thinks she's lost a son, wives that think they've lost their husbands. And then I looked over and saw Todd Russell's dad and I recognised him from the news and he was a grey, a colour grey. I've never seen a human being and I thought he was going to drop dead right then and there. And all I wanted to do, Michael, was try and find a way to go home. I wanted to try and turn this around so I could get out of this and go back home. So, so how, and this is probably one of the tips that you give from the stage, how does one hold it together with such a wash of emotion and negative thoughts as in, I want to get out of here, but you have to keep going. What's the tip for all of us as to how to go through that and come out the other side? It's about teamwork. It's, uh, I've got a lot of different ways of explaining it, but I got asked once by a reporter, how would you possibly try to explain what it was like to be part of that group? And I said to him that uh, I want you to imagine the Nile River is flooded and swollen and just gushing and you fall in and you try to swim back to the bank, but you can't. So you try to swim against the current as hard as you can, trying to slow yourself down, but you can't. You just keep getting rushed along in the water. And then you look out in the centre and in the centre is all these other rescuers and they're all out there in a big circle holding each other's hands. And you realise that the only way you'll survive, the only way you'll get through this is if you can swim out to the centre and join that circle and hold their hands. And that's what we did. We all hugged on to each other for dear life. And it was the greatest leveler that you've ever seen. You know, 
there was all different people with different authority levels. It was people with different experience in different areas. But when two people's lives are directly in your hands, that is the greatest leveling field for management ever because there's no such thing as a silly comment or a stupid, you know, do you know what I'm trying to say here? Yeah. Um, people, people just, it's, I don't think it's uniquely Australian, but we, we, we really bind together to fight to save our mates. And uh, it was an incredible experience to be part of that team, to see that leadership, that courageous leadership, which I talk about, because without that, uh, we would have fallen apart underneath, but they held that structure together. Unfortunately, some members of that team haven't come through the post-traumatic stress that you have. What makes it different for one person to survive and continue and others to fall? I honestly believe it's your, your family support um, when you come home. Um, I think um, I was blessed with such a strong, beautiful family that supported me through it. But I like to talk to my audience about the nine big, tough, muscly, tattooed miners that all fell over with post-traumatic trauma, depression, and a range of other issues, because if it can happen to them, it can happen to anyone. And I think it's very, very important where we're all trying to come to terms with mental health. Um, we're trying to see that um, our age group, my age group, where you're over 50, tend to be harder to convince. And so I use my platform now to convince that age group and younger that this is real. And I go through a whole range of things that will give them the tools to be able to talk to somebody that is suffering. Too many times in Australia, our mates see us suffering. Telling your friend to have another beer and it'll be better tomorrow is just not on. I, I tell people that um, you've got to stay away from alcohol. If you see a mate that's doing it tough, the first thing you've got to do is get into him, get to him by himself and sit down and tell him that no matter what he tells you, you are going to be there to support him. That it doesn't matter what he tells you. And then you may be able to get inside him because Men just want to push each other away and tell each other that, you know, that facade, you know, I'm bulletproof, I'm fine, I'll, I'll get through this. And, and I tell guys that, you know, seven men successfully commit suicide in Australia every single day, every single day. And, you know, I ask, where were their mates? You know, the blokes that had the ability to get with them away from alcohol um, in, an, in a setting where it's, it's possible for that guy to just break down and release what's wrong with him. Because it's that first contact with somebody that's really close to you, somebody that has that ability to connect in that way where you are able to release what's wrong and what's inside you. That's no different than when you go to your counsellor too. When you go to your first counsellor and you walk in and you don't feel like you could unload everything with this person, I tell them get up and run because there will be a counsellor out there that's for you and that you need to find that person where you feel that you can open up and talk about absolutely anything. And I'm talking about, you know, Michael, when I do my talks and I talk about the mental health, I also talk about sexual assault. I have some experience in that area. And I can tell you that most of the time after I've done that talk, I will have the biggest, ugliest, nastiest looking bloke with the big mustache and tattoos all over his neck. And he will come up and hug me and he will say, thank you, brother. Thank you. Because I've given... I've given him the strength to talk about it too because I've shown him that it's okay to it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to understand it because, see, what I've learned is those biggest, toughest, ugliest blokes are the guys that have put that facade on all their life to prove that they're men. They walk around trying to act tough all their lives because inside they have a secret that's so dark and it's buried so deep that they fear if they let it out, it will destroy them.
And that's, um, you know, I have, I just do so much stuff in my talks, Michael. I mean, I feel like the most important part is the briefing. You know, when you're doing that briefing with a client, if they want mental health, then you need, you know, sometimes there's a reason why they brought it in. They may have had a suicide at work or, you know, that's the sort of thing that it's really, really important that you get in there and find out why they want you there, what they want for you to deliver to their team. Yeah. And then if I could give this info to any speaker, get in early. Get into the venue as early as you possibly can, hours early if you can. I do it every single time. And I just tell the, I tell the client, you don't need to babysit me. I just want to stand in the back. I want to watch people's reactions. I want to see what your audience is. I want to find out what they're made of. Yeah. I want to find what they're reacting to so that I can deliver a talk on the day that is has a huge impact on them. So they're still thinking about me two and three days later because I do, Michael. I don't want to try to sound like I'm trying to put tickets on myself, but it's rare for me not to get a standing ovation because the passion I have inside, every topic I'm talking about, I deliver with so much passion that I people say you don't hear a pin drop. You know, you won't see people talking on a phone or, or yawning and looking back when I'm on the stage. You must speak to many different audiences and particularly young ones. Are you seeing a change in younger people regarding the stigma about mental health? Is that 100%. Michael, yeah. I tell my audience that Generation Y is going to change this. Generation Y was the only generation ever that made being gay cool. So they guys can do anything. Um, you know, they have that ability to be in touch with their own feelings. Um, and, and I honestly believe it's a generational thing, Michael, 100%, that we will see as this Generation Y comes through that there will be more and more and more acceptance of mental health and, and dealt with appropriately. You know, I really do believe they'll change it. That's great. Carson picked up earlier the emotion that is still very much with you whenever you're talking about the, the whole Beaconsfield experience. In your opinion, should someone revisit trauma as much as you do in your presentations? Is that part of the healing to get through stress by revisiting it? That's a hard one to answer. I was told right from the start that this will help help you, Darren. When I do my talk, I want to take my audience with me. I want them to smell it. I want them to hear the water. I want them to feel that they're right behind me crawling through tunnels because I don't try and control the emotion when I'm delivering it. I close my eyes and I walk myself back through the entire story. But I do that because in leadership, you have to have two things that are critical. That is respect and credibility. When you walk onto the stage to talk to an audience about, let's just say safety, okay, in the heavy industries and all that we have in Australia, the first thing you need is respect and credibility or they will not listen to you. I don't want anyone to take offence at this, but you can stick all the university educated people with pretty white shirts, pleated pants and PowerPoint presentations in front of these great big groups of construction workers and they don't listen. They look at their phones. They can't wait for it to end. They are yawning. They just want to get out of there. When I go there, I use the Beaconsfield Rescue as my vehicle to get respect and credibility with those guys so they know I come from where they did. They know I wore overalls. I got dirty. I was one of them. And so then they have a connection with me. And so then I have credibility and then they'll listen to me. Yeah. And that gives me my opportunity then to bring to them all this stuff that I have to keep them safe at work, but to change the culture of what they did, but to change their psyche and for them to look at things totally different than the way they do now. I want to give you, uh, for instance, um, Michael and Carson, I have um, 
a piece I do on reducing risk as a way of life, making it part of your DNA. You see, somebody that uses risk, uh, reduces risk as a way of life, is the sort of person that works into a new work, walks into a new work area, and he says, "Well, what would have the potential to harm me here? Where could I position myself to to be better? You know, if something went wrong." He's the sort of guy that's thinking about the next guys that are kind of coming to his work area. Where, how would I impact on them? Right. And I talk about, um, I'm just, I'm trying to say, there's very, very, very few freak accidents. If you look at investigations that Safe Work do, almost mm-hmm. always there's one, two, three, or four unusual things that didn't, ha- that hadn't happened before. And I call it stepping up. And at any point, somebody could have stepped up and said, "Mate, you cannot park that truck there. You cannot put that." that yeah. cable there and somebody could have broke the chain and stopped that catastrophic yeah. accident that took a life. You know? It's like air crash investigations. I love that yes. show because it shows yeah. if, you know, there was 12 things that yeah. all lined up, unfortunately, yes. and if number yeah. seven and 11 weren't there, we wouldn't have the crash. So are you a true believer that there is no such thing as an accident? I, I believe that there are very, 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 very few freak accidents. Now I'm going to give you an example of how I try and change their psyche. I talk to them, and I, I tell them that I want you to imagine that there's two guys from this group that are going on annual leave and they're both driving out of this town with their families. Off they're going on holidays on separate country roads and they come across roadworks. And the first guy who uses reducing risk as a way of life, part of his DNA, he pulls up just behind the car in front of him at the roadworks and he makes sure he leaves enough room between him and the car in front. And he, he knows that if he had to take off left or right, he could do it. And he would make that call at that split second. But then he immediately looks in the mirror and he watches two, four, six, eight cars starting to pile up behind him, stopping behind him. And so then he starts to relax and talks to his family. The other guy who doesn't you know, use reducing risks as a way of life, one of those workers we've all seen that just doesn't seem to care about anything, you know, himself, his workmates. He just pulls straight up behind the car in front of him at the roadworks and a big semi-trailer comes over the hill, no brakes, wipes the whole family out. They're all killed. And in heaven, he gets interviewed and they say to him, mate, what happened? And he says, it was just a freak accident. There was nothing I could do about it. I was jammed in behind this other car. I couldn't go anywhere. This truck came over the hill and took my whole family out. And I say to the audience, can you see, guys, can you see how one person avoided the exact same incident altogether and the other guy thought it was a freak accident? Yeah, and yeah. I go through a whole yeah. range of examples like this, trying to turn them, trying to get them to see there's another way of looking at this. And, that, you know, because um, all we've been doing the same, same, same things in this safety industry for so long that everyone's fallen asleep. They're all sick of it. Yeah, they've, they've got, got numb to it. Yeah. Yep. They've got these safe work procedures and JSAs that they do before they start a task. And all they want to do is tick and flick it so they can get started. And we've got to stop that because, you know, these, these JSAs, and safe work procedures. I get in there and I tell the workers, when you come out of a heavy industry and you go into another industry, you start to realise just how important they are because they teach you to think about the next step and the next step and the next step. And they teach you what will I impact on my other workers and how could I endanger them by doing this task. And this this, this system that's in place is just not given enough credit. Right. And yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know. I go on and on. No, and on. no, I do no. Get passionate, but I'm trying to give you, you know, a touch. I tell people because I get all these young ones say to me all the time, "Oh, Darren, it'd be a million to one chance that could happen." And I say to them, "And you know what I think a million to one chances? Lotto is twenty million to one, and some lucky bugger wins it every single Saturday night. Sometimes <laughs> multiple people. 
And those yep. people didn't go to that lotto store on Saturday morning to buy that ticket in a 20 million to one draw thinking it's impossible for me to win. Yeah. They went there thinking, if I buy this ticket, I'm in with a chance. And when you start taking the tiniest risks at work, you buy yourself a ticket, friends. Oh, I bet you won't win lotto, but yeah. you might win this one. You That's know? a great thought to keep in mind. These days, of course, you're doing a lot of speaking, but are you also blowing shit up? Um, I do do the occasional, I, I do get the odd request to come to a mine or if they've had a difficult situation and they want me to come in and, and do it. So, yeah, I have done a little bit in, in the past and, <laughs> uh, and I will continue to do that in the future because it does keep my hand in it, Michael, and it also keeps me in contact with those heavy industries where I get to see, you know, what the latest technologies are and where they're, where they're heading and stuff. So it's, uh, it's a good thing that I still stay in touch. Absolutely, because it adds to that credibility that you speak about. And that was recognised recently. You, uh, you were given an accolade, I believe. Yeah. So uh, Kevin Anderson is the Minister for Innovation and Regulation in New South Wales, and he selected me as a chairman. New South Wales Family Support Group for Injured Workers and Family Members Killed in Accidents at Work. So they've selected 12 people from families that have experienced that. And basically... I am now putting together that group of 12 and we're making recommendations to safe work on better ways that we could assist other families through this process and make it less traumatic for them in the future. And it's really exciting because it's a really great group of people who uh, have got their heart and soul in it because they've actually lost family members themselves. Yeah. And they just how important this is to make this system better. Oh, good on you. What a great organisation to be a part of and congratulations for Chairman. Darren, we can't control what happens to us, but we certainly are in control of our reaction to it. And I don't think there's many people that Carson and I have interviewed who have turned such a, a stressful experience that you didn't ask for, but you were kind of, you know, cajoled into, into such a positive event for so many people that you're now contacting. No, thank you. And um, I just want to thank Leading Voice for supporting me for all these years. They've done a great job and, uh, and I love working with these guys. So. If you want to hear me speak to your group, please give yep. Leading Voice a call. Thanks, Darren. Thanks for that plug. That's very nice of you. Well, I just want to reiterate too, in regards to what Michael was saying, uh, if you want to uh, hear a speaker, and the better way is actually experience a speaker, there are very few speakers in Australia in my 25 years in the industry that leave a lasting impact on you that Darren will. If you want to know a bit more about Darren Flanagan, what he talks on and how to book him for your next event, please go to darrenflanagan.com.au. That was Our Next Guest Is with Carson White from Leading Voice and your MC, Michael Pope. To hear more of our guests, you can find us on iTunes or simply visit www.ournextguestis.com.au. But until next time, let's take a break. Music.